0: Coindesk is calling on visionaries in the digital economy to present at our newest event, Ideas, investing in digital assets and enterprises summit. Ideas is the place for you to present your marketing opportunity in front of leading investors poised to help you get your idea off the ground. Apply today to become a presenter at Ideas 2022 by Coindesk. Visit coindesk.com forward slash ideas for more information. This episode is sponsored by Circle and Near
1: money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Michael Casey and Sheila Warren for the Money Reimagined podcast, as they explore the connection between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice.
0: And now, here's Michael Casey.
1: Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined, I'm Michael Casey, flying solo today sadly without my co-host Sheila Warren. The advent of crypto winter has complicated the outlook for regulation. Until this year's massive correction in token prices with the related collapses of Luna, Celsius and other once big high-flying players, industry leaders could argue that a lightweight touch to regulation would allow innovation in this booming sector to flourish. But the extent of the losses, and most importantly, those incurred by regular retail investors who've had their assets frozen, has swung the balance in favor of regulators. There's no doubt now that a comprehensive, consistent, trusted regulatory regime is needed if the industry is to earn the trust it needs to expand adoption and have a meaningful impact. The problem is, pretty much every time policy is designed during a crisis, there's an overreaction, which leads to overreach. Think of the shoe removal requirements at airports imposed after one terrorist smuggled explosives in his shoes. Did that policy really make us safer? Or did it just create a huge bottleneck in air travel while terrorists simply figured out new ways to stoke fear and chaos in Western societies? The same overcompensation happens in finance, and there's a good chance it will happen with crypto. This week, we got a test of what newly emboldened regulators might do. Tornado cash an Ethereum-based smart contract that mixes Ether payments to hide users' tracks, was added to the U.S. OFAC SDN list. That's the Office of Foreign Assets Controls list of specially designated nationals with whom Americans are not allowed to transact. According to the Treasury Department, the move was made in reaction to evidence that North Korean hackers had used the service to facilitate attacks. As industry group Coin Center pointed out, it was an unprecedented action. OFAC's sanctions list is designed for people, including companies that are recognized as legal persons. But Tornado Cash is software, and the program is intended to be run in an entirely decentralized way. CoinCenter worries that it is a constitutional breach, as code is regarded as a form of protected speech. The argument is that such moves could send a chill among developers and disincentivize innovation. Yet, people need to be protected from bad guys. If terrorists are able to hide their activity with services such as Tornado Cash, shouldn't they be prevented from doing so? To discuss this and the overall outlook for regulation in the wake of crypto winter, I'm joined today by Tanya Evans, professor at Penn State Dickinson Law, a published author and influential crypto advisor with an expertise in blockchain and crypto asset law, information privacy, administrative law, and social justice, and so much more. Let's bring her in. Hi, Tanya. Great to see you.
2: You as well. Thank you. It's been a long time, so it's great to see you and to connect, even
1: if it's for this topic. I know exactly. Well, you uh, you had you, you were gave me the honor of being on your podcast. It was a lot of fun, and we've been meaning to have you on for some time, so it's great that we can can get you on here. There's so much we could talk about. There's so many different ways. Like, I think, you know, just generally, you've got this broad view. You've been in this space for a while. You've got a capacity to see the big picture. So I really want to look at some point about really just generally what the regulatory outlook is now that we are in this new phase for the industry. But look, first of all, the big news of the week, Tornado Cash. Just give me a take, first of all. I mean, what's your read? I mean, this seemed like a really unique step that was taken. What do you see as the big issues here?
2: I'm really concerned because, as you know, in addition to all of the work I do on the crypto and blockchain side, I'm also an intellectual property lawyer. So this feels really, really familiar to me when I think of like the late 90s when peer-to-peer technology, which is very important, obviously, on the side of crypto and blockchain, but peer-to-peer technology was just coming into full view. We had Nap- Napster and Grokster, obviously BitTorrent, which persists, and of course, peer-to-peer technology for our purposes too. And I was always so concerned about, at that time, copyright laws that were overreaching and over-calibrating uh, on the technology itself, rather than what can be done with something that can be used for both, in the case of copyright fringing and non-infringing purposes for our purposes with, with tornado cash. We're talking about the process of mixing versus the mixer itself, which obviously implicates so many concerns around privacy and security, which constantly comes up. But just because something is private doesn't mean it's illicit. And so the overreach, particularly in, in the crypto winter, it is a great concern. And then we have the perfect or imperfect storm, as the case may be with Tornado Cash.
1: Yeah, look, let's just break this down a bit then. Like, you know, so you said it's a process and not the actual mixer itself. Like, what's the real concern there? Nail down why that's a real issue from a privacy perspective and an intellectual property perspective.
2: Absolutely. Well, when we're thinking from a United States perspective and point of view, we're talking about something that is fully decentralized software, fully autonomous software. Software is code and code is speech. And so when we think of the freedom of speech and the limitations that can be placed not just on uh, someone using technology for an illicit purpose, but really could be a reach to the very programmers who are creating the software, which presents incredible concerns. And also just as a matter of privacy of what we do with our money, one of the central tenets In this ecosystem is privacy and an alternative means of exchanging value, that as long as you're not engaged in nefarious activities, you should be allowed to do in the same way that we do with physical cash. If I hand you a $10 bill that's between you and me, as long as it's not for illegal purposes, we carry on. The idea of regulating technology, one, I don't think it'll be very successful because it ends up being whack-a-mole. And so mm. for every tornado cache, there might be a fork of tornado cache and the new one crops up or 10 more or 100 more uh, crop up. So I- I'm always concerned when we focus on technology that in and of itself is agnostic uh, or neutral, but may be used for nefarious purpose.
1: Yeah, I want to just like I think the developer Roman Seminov uh, was pull up the tweet that he had here. I think it gives a a pretty good nailing of the issue, right? GitHub account was just suspended, is writing open source code illegal now, right? Just nails it, right? And this is the thing, all of the development that happens in this space really is open source one, there's some stuff that's not, but for the most part, it is the sort of driving framework around which people build, and to your point, there should be this freedom of speech that goes around that, but at the same time, that very open source nature is what actually makes it something that can just go anywhere very, very easily. But I think right. one of the things that's interesting is like, you know, GitHub ends up being an agent, right, of mm. the Treasury Department here, as does, I mean, USDC. I mean, lots of different entities have now just admittedly they have no choice are now blocking all these tornado cache addresses because that's the rule. So you end up with this sort of these entities that do have some level of centralization to how they're managed being entities that are actually acting as agents of the government. What does that mean for the structure of the industry? Yeah.
2: Yeah, I saw some pushback. Jeremy Allaire tweeted this this excellent thread on this very topic earlier. And on one hand, Circle has a responsibility to honor the laws on the books at this time. That being said, there's also the opportunity and indeed call to action to ensure that laws going forward and, and regulations going forward will provide the necessary space for innovation, the protection of privacy and obviously security as well. We want to protect investors and consumers. Most of the people who are operating in the space, the vast majority, are very interested not only in clarity, but also a well-functioning ecosystem that thrives. And it does not thrive in an environment where you have nefarious activity. But the idea that you have to comply with the current laws, that's important. But also in this changing uh, regulatory environment, again, with respect to privacy, a critical tenant of space, this is definitely threatened when the government sanctions the use of technology. Again, the the mixer itself and the code that goes into Mm. enabling software rather than the, the process of mixing
1: it's an opportunity, of course, to just, you know, elevate the conversation, perhaps. I mean, I, I don't know. Do, do you think there could be lawsuits around this? I mean, could this thing be taken all the way to the s- Supreme Court? I mean, is it, is it something that actually creates an opportunity to like lay down some legal clarity, but also educate folks around?
2: It? The word that you just use education, will be critically important, but in education in a vacuum will not be sufficient. And I suspect that well-heeled members of the ecosystem will make it a point to ensure that we are protecting freedom of speech and software coding and development and protecting devs in the space and just the full-throttled approach to innovation here in the United States and around the world. But here in the States in particular, when we're talking about freedom of speech, this is the moment in time in our ecosystem where incredibly important, regardless of any differences in the space, because... Go on crypto Twitter. There are plenty of opinions, and many of them don't agree. Feel a, a concerted mm-hmm. effort in this particular space to make sure that regulators and legislators get this right, so that this type of action may be an outlier, but not more of what we may may see in the future.
0: Join us for Converge Twenty
2: Two, Circle's first annual conference on the blockchain-driven future of money, coming this September to San Francisco. Converge 22 is a gathering for what's next in Web3, featuring demos and developer workshops, plus guest speakers like our very own Money Reimagined co-host Sheila Warren, Aave's Stanley Kulikov, Compound's Robert Leshner, and Solana's Anatoly Yakovenko. Money Reimagined listeners get a special discount with the code COINDESK. Register today at converge.circle.com.
0: NIR is a revolutionary yet simple Web3 platform for building decentralized apps. Designed by developers for developers, over 700 projects are now building on NIR's fast, secure, and scalable protocol. Whether you're a crypto native launching DeFi apps, NFT marketplaces, and play and earn games, or looking to migrate your project from Web2, NIR makes it easy to build Web3 for the masses. Near offers developers a variety of tools, resources, and support for building apps, empowering communities, and creating a more fair, inclusive, and equitable future. Start your Web3 developer journey now by visiting NIR near at NIR.org.
1: Yeah, I and mean, part of the education might be demonstrating how this free speech idea, if you going to call it that, which I think is appropriate, plays out in positive ways, right? So it was interesting seeing today people were asked over Twitter to weigh in, like, have you know, can you say, have you used Tornado Cash to move funds to people in need? And it turns out people were using it to send funds to the Ukraine Dow because hiding the tracks is really valuable when you're trying to keep uh, some sort of paper trail away from the Russians. There's a story that I often come back to. Then it was the opening story within The Age of Cryptocurrency, the book I, I wrote with Paul Wiener in 2015 about how Bitcoin was being used to fund the activities of a bunch of young women that were working in tech schools in Afghanistan. And, you know, they were producing blogs and providing material for Francesco Rulli's, it was called uh, Bitlanders at the time, uh, mm-hmm. this, this service, and were being paid in Bitcoin precisely because that way it could be essentially hidden from, from their fathers, from their uncles, from their brothers, There was no way to get money to them uh, through the existing financial system because there was it was essentially censored by males, right? The patriarchal society. Here was a way to empower women with a with a service that actually bypassed. Now it wasn't a mixer, but it had the same principle behind it. The value of the pseudonymity was really powerful. Francesco came to me with a statement a while ago. Just and we had him on the show that I you know some time back, and it just blew me away. It was around the time that the Taliban had, sadly. Seized, re seized control of Kabul two years ago. And he said, just imagine if the Bit license hadn't been written in 2015. That is the New York Department of Financial Services law, because it stopped him from sending those funds via Bitcoin to Afghanistan because now he had to identify those girls. And the idea was like, just imagine if there was now this cohort after all that time of these now empowered and wealthy young women as a right. bulwark against the, you know, reactionary, you know, misogyny and, and, and patriarchal power of, of, that, of that entity, right? So just the, the implications of trying to block things in the name of protecting things, and then what that means for freedom, what that means for the causes that we think most Americans would believe in. So right. that's where I find it very frustrating, because I've had so many conversations with officials about this, and they get it. But they seem driven instinctively to want to impose the sanctions and the rules, and then they go to this overreach of, of essentially blocking speech. You, you yeah. deal with these people all the time. What do, what do you think is the right way to get the message across and to get them? Or is it that we're just viewed as sort of crazy extremists? The who outliers. Just want nothing, right. but yeah, outlier. We're, just, we're the ones who want to encourage the, the terrorists. You know, we're, we're, we're the North Koreans. Is that it? Is it we're just seen as outliers and no one else cares? Or is there just some way to actually bring a consensus here.
2: I feel it's on this point, which is particularly important and just with the future of mass adoption and really understanding the technology, you don't have to look under the hood to understand the disruptive impact uh, from a positive point of view. But I find a lot of times that regulators and legislators and some just regular folks don't get it here in the United States. Because they don't necessarily see the, um, they can intellectualize about what you've just described, but they've never experienced it. It's interesting to see, regardless of political affiliation, how um, politics is impacting the United States in a way that may encourage people on all sides of a coin to want to double down on the pseudonymous nature in most cases, sometimes the anonymous uh, nature of transacting value and other messaging. Really, really important to preserve a, a well informed and well protected democracy with little d. And so it, it's incumbent upon people to be able to speak freely. And the chilling effect yeah. on privacy that is directly connected to how we use our money and with whom, uh, again, as long as it's not for a nefarious purpose, privacy does not mean illegality. And it's a really slippery slope once we start focusing on Mm. software and the future of work and wealth and creativity and collective action, which is so important in the space as well. So you're really uh, touching on a really important point. It does, in some sense, really involve an education to get people who don't, who can only intellectualize about it, about the practical, real-world implications, both here in the United States. And of course, uh, your example is well made. I use it in my courses as well because I use your book. It's a really good one for others to start to think beyond your limited circle and understanding to understand the impact that it could have for those who are perhaps systemically marginalized, either through politics or religion or patriarchy, as you mentioned. Really, really important to protect this technology.
1: Well, thanks, thanks for using the book. We're so glad to see it still being, uh, still has <laughs> some value, you know, seven years later for students uh, coming into this space. You know, you made a really good point about people not experiencing things, right? You can intellectualize, but you can't experience, right? And I, I think that's for a long time been a problem in other aspects of it as well. Like, I mean, the use case for Bitcoin as, you know, as digital gold, really, you know, maybe it's starting to have some relevance now if, if people are suddenly aware of inflation as the first thing. But for many, many years, Americans had no real experience of inflation. They never saw to think of the Federal Reserve as somehow debasing the currency. And there's very good reasons to believe the Fed does a very good job. But if you're Argentine or Venezuelan or whomever, right, then the use case for something like Bitcoin becomes much, much more easy to get your head around if you're thinking about that particular functionality of it. But again, that's not the lived experience of policymakers in the U.S. So I think in some respects, it speaks also to just the broader societal problem of diversity, right? I mean, if, you know, you've got a singular white male understanding of the world. You can intellectualize, but it just doesn't resonate. Doesn't mean anything. Doesn't capture. I'm I'm lucky enough to have lived in places like Argentina and had to move money out, and I think I've you know viscerally understand these problems. And so you know I don't know education. Do we have to sort of get people to actually go and spend some time in a in a remote part of Afghanistan and try to move money around that way and see what what we're talking about here? But I think your point as well about money being integral to activism and free speech. Right, you can't really have this true freedom unless you can sort of like free the money up. But let's, let's acknowledge, right? Obviously North Korea hacking into let's say our electricity grid and holding people ransom through a mix of mechanism with funding, that's not a good thing, right? So right. you know you can certainly understand, you know, you can see why there is positive intent here. How do we deal with that problem? I mean, like in the world of money transmission, there are not always properly implemented because banks, I think, over-respond and don't give enough flexibility. But there is supposed to be a risk-weighted approach that allows for, you know, one, I think in the US, it's actually $3,000 transmissions without going through the same burdensome identity requirements. But this is a different thing, right? Because this is probably larger funds of money that are being moved around by developers and DeFi operators and so forth. So, I mean, is there a way in which we could take the same risk-weighted approach or is there a a mechanism for sort of identifying bad actors through data analysis and so forth that would make for a much more nuanced handling of this rather than banning and shutting down actual smart contracts
2: the idea of nuance <laughs> when the legislative sausage is made uh, may not be the best even with with the best of intentions i'm really encouraged by the the larger community on the policy side seeing so many different voices Engaging, getting out ahead of this, meeting with legislators who actually craft the uh, the enabling acts that empower the administrative state. Everyone understand. I I think everybody understands that ninety nine percent of agencies regulating in the space are Article Two. They're under the auspices of President. There are a few outliers uh, for on the the legislative side and judicial side, but the, the majority of the administrative state sits decidedly under president's auspices. But those agencies are enabled through enabling legislation through legislative initiatives. It's critically important to engage legislators early and often to be at the tables um, formally and informally to have these discussions to get those who are empowered uh, with setting the legislative agenda and the administrative agenda. And, And we can talk about the executive order as well this year that, that mm. it's it kind of the clarion call for the administrative t- the state to uh, move with a concerted effort that they understand the positives because the negatives are are so loud, uh, it, particularly in a crypto winter when things, you know, we have the dramatic pullback, the notional and actual losses, uh, act- actual, I should say, losses um, in the crypto space. Uh, we, we can't go without without honoring that. You've been through quite a few Crypto winter, so you understand the ebb and the flow, but so many people are just starting to pay attention, even though we've been engaging with legislators um, and regulators for some time now. It's actually starting to stick. And we can see that with yeah. the, the executive order and the, and the subsequent actions of, of justice, treasury and, 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 and the alphabet soup.
1: Yeah, it's really quite noticeable from the conversations that I would have in Washington in 2015, you know, when I was down there with MIT. And now the level of understanding is is completely different. And for the most part, you know, I I think there is an acknowledgement that there's real value in the technology. Obviously, there's a few folks out there on the Hill who just want to ban crypto, et cetera, et cetera. But the level of understanding is now a lot greater. I think that's obviously a positive thing. It's again, though, like how do we like calibrate that understanding around all of the multitude of political pressures and the you know, current environment we're in? So with that in mind, I mean, yeah, the EO, I think most people saw that very positively. You know, It really did seem to be a sensible call to action for all the different agencies to come up with something that's comprehensive and effective and that is pro-innovation. But that was out last year when we were in a crypto summer. You know, now we keep pointing out we're in the winter. Um, yeah. Do you feel as if there's pressure on these agencies to just shift to a more heavy-handed approach or has that education and that sort of awareness become well enough entrenched that there is a sort of a sensible long-term view going on here?
2: Oh, the devil's in the details for this one. We have the EO that comes out officially, or well, at least it's signed. We, we had the indications before, but signed in March. And I looked up mm-hmm. what the price of BTC was at the time. And I was reminded in, in some of the prep for our conversation that uh, Treasury Secretary Yellen, actually her remarks were leaked like one day before the EO was actually signed. But it gave kind of a, a bit of a, a sigh of relief, a collective sigh in ecosystem where it seemed to be, you know, focused on the coordination across agencies, the encouragement of innovation, but also clarity around regulations. And that sounded like what most of us have been talking about with uh, policymakers and legislators for sure. And when I think about the regulatory landscape at that time and the state of crypto at that time, to your point and where we are now, Whenever there's this contraction and a lot of fear, well, the FUD, the fear, uncertainty, and doubt, it makes it easier for, um, I think, policymakers, legislators to kind of move forward and focus on the ills without the corresponding balance to make sure that it's just enough, but not more, right? So the precision and the nuance that you're talking about often gets lost when you have really big and important and devastating consequences from bad actors in the space. There's no doubt about it. It does a complete disservice to the ecosystem, but I think that we'll still have continued emergence of privacy technology, but also we'll see regulation continue, doubling down on stables, uh, taking a closer look at non-fungible tokens, seeing what's going on in the DeFi space and the buggy software that leads to the, the hacks and the drains that are on the you know the headlines all the time as well. We've had so many in the last couple of months. It almost forces legislators and regulators to do something when I feel like they stayed on the sidelines for quite a bit. We don't see that with the SEC right now. I think this idea of um, uh, regulation by enforcement is a great concern to be sure. But I'm really heartened to see what Senators Lummis and Gillibrand recently wrote up, giving some definition to. Um, vexing language. So some of those previous bills around taxonomy, I see a little bit of that in there. And also really focusing on which agency should really take a a front seat. Some of the exemptions for taxes, there's a lot of really good stuff in there. I don't think we'll see anything happen this year because we're just too far in the cycle now and with elections coming up. But I'm, I'm hopeful for 2023 to see the fulfillment and the clarity that the ecosystem needs in order to really move forward in the United States in a robust fashion?
1: Well, first of all, thank you very much for correcting me on my timing there. Uh, my excuse is that crypto time, as we often say, you know, moves so much faster and a lot happens in a short period of time. I thought the EO executive order from Biden was last year, but of course, it was in March, as you rightly pointed out, which actually isn't that long ago, but a lot has happened since March. And so thank you for Agreed. politely uh, getting the record straight there. Um, Look, I want to think a little bit just before we wind up here on uh, just the principle of decentralization and and how some of these actions just inherently work against it. And therefore, because the technology's benefits, the benefits of DeFi exist within what those two first letters mean. D, it's the decentralized nature of a financial system that doesn't have, for example, a, a boys club sitting in a pub in London establishing what the world's LIBOR interest rates are, right, that it is actually something that could be established by a decentralized process of the market is an inherently good thing. And you, but you need that decentralization. You need to remove the capacity of actors to step in and censor, to manipulate, to change. And, anyway, and decentralization is hard. And so there have to be solutions that uh, I think, you know, integrate in a hybrid way at least as we progress towards these sort of aspirational states of decentralization, s- solutions that you know inherently have some centralization to it. But what worries me is like, all right, now GitHub and you know, uh, um, basically you know, Infura and and the various other node uh, operators within the Ethereum—they're all acting in the in, in, they have to, no choice but in response to the OFAC ruling on Tornado Cash, and so you know, you're essentially bringing into this network, this sort of like censorshiping power and emphasizing that and actually sort of elevating the importance of those centralized entities. When we know from the Celsius collapse and the three O's capital problem and problems with BlockFi and all of these entities, these are CFIs, these are centralized entities. It's precisely that level of control that is the problem. So what worries me is that regulators go, oh, I need to find somebody that I can subpoena and sue and control. So I'm going to, put more weight on that centralized entity and now all of a sudden you're just like re-centralizing the entire industry which defeats the whole purpose so i mean i don't know how we're going to fix this in a few minutes of conversation here but like <laughs> how do we you know again like are you worried about that and is there a sufficient understanding of the very principles of why decentralization is valuable here amongst these agencies as they go go toward it
2: I'm a huge proponent of decentralized finance. I'm a former chair of the Maker Ecosystem Growth Foundation. Oversight to the full decentralization of that project was successful and it's gone on to be great. Um, And so and also when I think about it as a matter of economic and social justice, you know, I talk a great deal about that. The ability to remove, you know, disintermediating finance, disintermediating the creativity space to. Level the playing field through technology in ways that we've not been able to do through laws. So it's critically important to maintain as much of that as possible. The challenge, as you've identified, is that it's difficult to do when you have this type of disintermediation and kind of destabilization or disruption in heavily regulated industries, in finance, in healthcare, when you have the legacy systems in entertainment that don't want to see these changes in this way. That makes it really, really important. But this technology is always going to outpace the law, as technology across the board always does. The problems that the entertainment industry saw with peer-to-peer technology and the internet and and perfect digital copies of MP3 files, we still do that today. They had to right-size their relationship with the technology. Industry had to catch up. And the laws had to catch up to support it for industry. So we see industry and we see a lot of um, industry money from legacy and, and TradFi either sitting on the sidelines or starting to get in. And they are trying to replicate the same system that we have only to their benefit. We see large banks quietly offering exposure to their high net worth individuals, et cetera, et cetera. That's the old way, that's the old system. The vexing part to legacy is the fact that decentralization Is not only challenging that, but it creates this customer service problem. So I really think it's not a matter of if, but when, as long as we've been, and especially you in this conversation have been in this space, we are relatively early, but there's so many more eyes and so much more focus that as a matter of policy and uh, lobbying efforts to make sure that this technology is developed in a way that supports all that protects folks but allows the innovation to go forward is really the best course so i really do believe maybe it's you know optimism and glass half full but i believe it's not a matter of if but when
1: well thank you for pointing make me feel a little old by being in a, you know having <laughs> been in this space for a long time but uh, that's a really good uh, optimistic note to close on. I, I always like it when our guests round it up with a nice bow and give us this optimistic. I'm a, I Look, I'm a glass-half-full kind of guy myself. I don't think we would be in this space and Agreed. going on this wild journey if we didn't see some end game that has a positive in it. But thank you. That's a, that's a great way to frame it. And I think that this is inherently difficult. We are, we are not disrupting the shoelace industry, right? This is the... Right. This is the financial industry, the heavily regulated, most important, most powerful industry in the world. And it comes with an enormous amount of incumbency and political power. And, and, and therefore, it's just difficult. We'll get there. Two steps forward, three back, one back, whatever it is, whatever the math works, we'll eventually move forward, I think. Listen, uh, Professor Tony Evans, thank you so much for being on the show. It was a, it was a pleasure. Uh, um, really, you know, it would be great to have had Sheila here with you. But uh, we'll have to get you back on when, when she's back and do a deeper dive into a lot of these topics because you, you bring such a, a wonderful perspective. It's, uh, it's so great to have it all. These complex issues laid out with such clarity. So thank you so much for, for being with me today.
2: Thank you, Michael.
1: And thank you to all of you uh, listeners and viewers for joining us for another episode of Money Reimagined. Uh, do come back next week at the same time to catch us. Uh, that's all we have time for for now. See you later. Bye.
0: You've been listening to Money Reimagined. Today's show featured Michael J. Casey and guest professor Tanya Evans. This episode was produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau with announcements by Adabi Levine and our executive producer is Jared Schwartz. Our theme song is by Shepard. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line Money Reimagined, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening.